HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is Capri Gaffaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. On the next episode, I'm joined by two guests who are journalists by trade and forged a path as stewards of Midwestern storytelling. Meet James Norton, the editor and co-founder of Heavy Table based in the Twin Cities, and Amanda Godosik, the founder of the Midwest Nice Blog. Amanda, thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you for having me. We have so much to talk about. I know from our previous conversations, you know, I am just so energized by your path, by everything that you've done, by your passion for the Midwest, uh, and so excited to share your story with our listeners. So um, let's kind of just go back to the beginning, which is usually where I start with so many of my guests. Uh, but I think your origin story is actually quite cool and and, and really in, important. You are a Midwest native, so you've had this love for the Midwest, um, you know, dating back to childhood. Um, set the stage for us as far as, you know, how you grew up in Wisconsin and, and how those that experience kind of planted the seed for your journey later in life. Yes. So I am from Wisconsin, born and raised and very, very proud of that. And I grew up very much raised by a village. I was very lucky and fortunate to spend a lot of my childhood um, at my grandmother's house, my, my, uh, dad's mom. And she was the best cook I've ever known. I learned most of what I know from her. And uh, so basically, every other weekend, we were at her house. And it was Friday through Sunday, breakfast, lunch and dinner was all homemade from scratch from things she had grown in the garden or canned or, you know, made herself. And it would be my grandma and my dad and my aunts and uncles and cousins. And it would just be everybody around her table eating. And most pictures of me from my childhood, I either am at a kitchen table on the kitchen counter or holding a utensil in my hand of some kind. Because <laughs> um, I just was always in the kitchen helping or eating something that she had made. Uh, my nickname when I was little was actually garbage disposal because if somebody <laughs> didn't finish it, I would. <laughs> um, and I was also really, really lucky to have a local youth center in my town that when I got a little bit older, I started going down and spending my weekends there. And the couple that runs it, um, Sean and Dawn, Pearson were so kind and so encouraging. And they saw this kind of budding interest I had in food because I came of age the same time the Food Network came of age. And so Rachel Ray came on the screen and, and I was like, oh, you can do this? 
you know, Giada De Laurentiis is, is making food in a gorgeous kitchen and Ina Garten is living the dream. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is an option. And so I just got even more passionate about food and communicating that passion about food. And with the skills that I had from my grandma and with learning that food media was an option, I decided to pursue a journalism degree because from the time I was 15, I started saying, well, if I can make food for my friends and family and get paid to write about it, that's the dream job. That's all we want to do, right? I mean, that's certainly a dream job for, for me and I think probably for many of our listeners. And and what you're describing about, you know, growing up in the Midwest and and, you know, being around the table with your grandma and spending all of this time cooking with family and eating with family. I, I think that's something that is so relatable and, and really such a defining moment for, for many of us. Um, you know, whether you grew up in the Midwest or not, you know, that, that kind of culinary experience growing up often shapes, you know, all of us uh, culturally and, and otherwise. Did you grow up uh, eating any specific like ethnic foods um, because of your background? Yes. So I am much like most people in Wisconsin of Polish and German descent. Um, My grandma was 50-50. My dad was 75-25. So I'm a little bit of a mix um, in there as well. And so it was, we would have pierogi or borscht. Um, My grandma made the best beet jelly, like to this day, I have her recipe in my recipe box. And like people hear the phrase beet jelly and are like, hmm, I I was just going to say, I don't how much people are like, oh, beet jelly. You know what? Like I'm going to put that in my repertoire. It really works. Yeah. So there were, there were the traditional, um, dishes and, you know, at Christmas time, we always had the Opatki, the Polish Opatki, um, uh, Fat Tuesday. What is that for folks that are not familiar? Opatki is that little wafer. Um, this was more traditional than a recipe per se, but it was the little wafer that you'd break off and dip in honey. And it, it, it was about um, giving thanks and asking for blessings. And it was just a really beautiful tradition that we all did around the dinner table during the holidays. And then, you know, Fat Tuesday, having the punchki, the Polish donuts. Punchkis, um, yes. Yes. Or, you know, also uh, Shrove Tuesday, doing the pancakes and things like that. And, um, of course, fish fry. I mean, I started serving at my first (laughs) fish fry when I was in first grade. So we went, we, uh, we know that the fish fry is, you know, it is, I mean, it is obviously there is a religious component and many, many churches do fish fries as well as many other like ethnic clubs and a whole host of people, but it is a religion in the Midwest and, you know, you have to like map out where the best fresh fries are. So I feel you on this. Yes. Yes. So I, we had, there was, uh, I grew up in a very small town and it was like the one, the KC hall, you went and you had your fish fry and they had students from the parochial school were the servers. And I, this yep. is something that at the time you didn't think anything of it. And looking back now you have to laugh, but it was like, there were seven-year-olds going to the bar, grabbing brandy old fashions <laughs> and taking them to the table and being like, okay, who had the brandy old fashioned sweet? Who had the brandy old fashioned sour? And it was just very much it's like- It's totally normal. What are you talking yes, about? <laughs> absolutely. Nobody batted an eye. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it still happened at that KC Hall today. Um so yeah, definitely had those traditional foods. My dad was always making brats. I still make my brats just the way my dad did, boiled in beer with onions. And they're, you know, always a quintessential Wisconsin brand. Um, and it's just, food has really been the constant in my life, no matter what else has changed or been added or removed, food has always, and I like to think will always be there. Uh, And, you know, it is a constant in our lives. I mean, it is a constant in our lives. It is a constant in, you know, particularly again, when you grow up like this, it, it is, it's a touchstone, I think for, for so many of us. And I relate, you know, so much to your story growing up with your grandmother and, you know, cooking with the grandmother and having those ethnic foods. I mean, my, in my case, being Italian, also Ukrainian. So pierogies certainly were involved too for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, having that constant, 
um, and knowing a little bit about your story, it really is this thread that continues throughout your life. So, you know, I know that you had this kind of, I don't want to say epiphany, but this kind of aha moment with the Food Network of, wait a minute, I could, you know, combine my passion for food with, you know, communicating with writing, with, you know, sharing stories. Um, so you went to journalism schools kind of as a result, right? Yes, I did. I I had the grand idea because I I grew up also in the age of every heroine in a rom-com I watched worked at a fancy magazine in New York. So my plan was <laughs> I'm going to go to journalism school. I went to a Midwestern school. I went to Northwestern University and got my journalism degree uh, yep. in magazine it's a writing. great journalism school. Yes, it really, it really was. And I often like to joke that I was the Elle Woods of Northwestern. Like I probably shouldn't have been there, but I had the heart and the spirit. <laughs> and um, I wrote every piece, every assignment I wrote about food. If it was a weather story, it's how does seasonal depression affect appetites? If it was supposed to be a sports story, it was about, you know, how do athletes fuel their bodies? And I just was constantly writing about food in school. And then when I wasn't in school, or sometimes when I was supposed to be in school in class, I was eating around Chicago and that broadened my food horizons even more. Mm -hmm. But I had these grand plans of, you know, graduating and moving to New York and writing for the Food Network magazine. And ultimately that didn't happen, but I'm so grateful that it didn't because I'm doing really and truly what I feel I'm meant to be doing. Uh, which is food blogging. So I have my website. I create recipes for readers who are really looking for, you know, the joke is always, oh, the Midwest, it's it's meat and potatoes, right? And I do do a lot of that. Right. Um, and I, ha I have a husband who hunts. I do a lot of wild game, a lot of carbohydrates. But then also, yeah. especially this year, my plan is to lean even more heavily into that Midwestern culture. So I have been working on my fish fry recipe for months, making sure that it's perfect. And not just the fish, but all those components of the fish fry, from the coleslaw to oh, the yes. fries, to that buttered piece of rye bread that is like so perfectly soft. Oh my gosh. How could you forget about that? How could you forget about exactly, that? Exactly. Exactly. So I really just, I love the idea that somebody could be could be making their own Midwestern memories with my, with my recipes. I love that too. Now, this is obviously not your first blog foray. So I want to rewind to your freshman year in college when you had the bright idea of having a food blog, which was, I guess, your first foray into food blogging. Yes, it was. I discovered again, um, I was in college and I was a broke college student. And, you know, I'd be studying in Starbucks and be thinking, man, I could really go for one of those mini vanilla bean scones. And I was like, but I can't afford that. I wonder if I could make it myself because I lived in a dorm that had a kitchen on every floor. And I picked my dorm solely for the fact that it had a kitchen on every floor, because I knew that no matter where I was assigned, I would have access to a kitchen. So when I, when I moved in under my dorm bed, I had two mixing bowls, a handheld mixer and a wooden spoon. And I was like, all right, we are going to figure this out. Amazing. I mean, that's really a lot of forethought for, you know, a graduating senior that is really thinking, Hey, you know, probably not at the top of a lot of college kids lists is I want a kitchen in my dorm. And I, I needed that. I knew that it would be a way not only for me to de-stress and decompress, but also that's how I make friends. That's how I care for people. That's how I connect with people. So it not only was great to like, oh, make, make a cake for somebody's birthday or make chocolate chip cookies for a special occasion. But if people could hear and smell what I was making in the kitchen, you know, it's like that cartoon where the little, the wolf smells the pie on the windowsill. People would come into the kitchen from smelling the apple pie. You're like, Hey, I want to be your friend. Yes. So it's actually, it's, it's how I made friends. And it's, I really think it's how I became the, the social chair of the door. <laughs> um, That's a good way to do it. Yes, absolutely. And so I discovered what food blogs were by necessity. You know, I wanted to make a recipe because I couldn't afford to buy it. And then I discovered what food blogs were and I just dove into them so deep headfirst and yes, I created my first 
blog called The Domestic Goddess, which I was so pleased with that myself. That is brilliant. You should be. You should be. Yes. And um, I had a little digital camera and I had scrapbook pages that I used as backgrounds. And I, you know, to this day, I remember I made a a white chocolate pretzel cupcake because that back then it was such an exercise in creativity. You know, it wasn't an assignment. It was just a purely passion project. Yeah. But I mean, and it comes through. Thank you. I mean, but what a fantastic, but like what a fantastic way to learn though. I mean, you're following your passion, your senses, you know, you're kind of doing it very organically. Um, and you know, all of those experiences end up informing, you know, later, um, you know, uh, later professional experiences as well. Yes, absolutely. I really, um, this is something that now that I'm in my thirties, I can look at this behavior with a little bit more honesty and a little bit more, um, compassion in that, I wasn't immediately sure. successful at this blog that I started my freshman year of college, you know, cause I was reading all of these, these big blogs at the time, um, how sweet eats and pioneer woman and these people that were really at the forefront, they really, you know, were pioneers in the food blogging space. And I wasn't, you know, an overnight success. So I, I gave up pretty, pretty quickly. And sometimes I think, where would I be if I, hadn't done that if I just would have stuck with it. But ultimately, I know that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that is in my little Wisconsin kitchen, uh, making food. (laughs) And it seems like that was absolutely the place for you to be. But you had a few more stops on the road before you got back to Wisconsin in that kitchen. Uh, And, you know, Actually, let me let me back up one more time and talk. Did we have we talked about your independent study yet? I, I don't no. want to leave Midwestern uh, Northwestern University yet because I think that this is also a really cool story about um, you know doing an independent study on food blogging. Yes, so I you know freshman year I discovered what food blogging was, and by my senior year I very luckily was able to take an independent study with a professor. Um, Professor Owen Youngman. I'm not sure if he's still at Northwestern. I should look him up. But he, I had taken a class of his on Google and I had the idea of like, okay, how does a food blog interact with Google? Like what are the Google best practices that a food blog needs to know in 2014, which now a decade later, they're totally different. You know, it's the, the landscape has changed so much Um, but it was, it was really fun and really exciting to do. It was also great that I got to blog for credit and kind of track, track my stats and experiences. And again, it was, it was a learning and that was a little bit, um, that was the start of me kind of breaking my, my stubborn shell that I have. And I think a lot of creatives experience this where if they're not immediately good at something, they quit and move on to something else. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough. It, times is tough be, being a type A. It's yes. Like, if you don't get something done, if you're not perfect at it right out of the gate, even though you've never done it before, you know, it's, it's time to hang your head in shame. Yes. If I don't have the innate ability to just do this flawlessly at first execution, then what, what am I even (laughs) living for? Um, And luckily I am definitely working past that now. And blogging has been the greatest exercise in doing that because things are always changing. The landscape is always shifting and it's about being open and willing to learn and to adjust. And honestly, I think that that is a perfect correlation with being in the kitchen too, right? You constantly have to adjust. Trial and error. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can't be afraid to fail. I mean, it is partially, it is trial and error. And sometimes you're chasing, you know, a taste memory that, you know, you really have to tweak in order to get it right for it to be how you remembered it. Uh, You know, sometimes, you know, you can follow a recipe and it just does not come out, you know, the way that you want to for whatever reason. So, you know, you, you do kind of have to put that type A ego aside in the kitchen. And and I find that correlation really interesting. It sounds like that is some good advice for aspiring bloggers as well. Absolutely. I think the biggest thing that helped me in my journey, particularly in the last four or five years is just being willing to say, you know, I don't know. 
I don't actually know how to do X, Y, and Z. And either figuring it out yourself or going to the expert. Uh, it's, it's the same with mm-hmm. watching the Food Network, right? I, I wasn't a professional chef, but I was watching these people who were and learning techniques of how to properly brown mushrooms or how to properly sear a steak and like all of these different techniques that I just wasn't innately born with. Well, and you know what else though, the, you know, the magic of, of any kind of media, which, you know, I'm sure you are aware of now is, you know, it takes two or three days to film, you know, a 26, you know, minutes show. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have, there's all kinds of magic in the camera of plating and, you know, the, the food styling and how many times you do take. I mean, there's so much that goes into those things that look flawless, but really are not, you know, yes. uh, because, People are not doing it in one take. No. No, and it's, so, again, that's... I'm just saying, be easy on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm learning. I think as time goes on, I'm learning that more and more, too. I actually, two weeks ago, was remaking our wedding cake. I baked our wedding cake five years ago, and every year I remake it. Oh, and wow. I, I messed it up. I love that. Thank you. It's a very fun tradition, but I messed it up three times before I got it. And it's a recipe that I have written down and I've literally made it for five years. And for whatever reason this day, it just, you know, I could feel when it was off the first time. And the second time I had high hopes and I was like, okay, well, I did change that one thing. I guess I shouldn't have. And the third time nailed it. It was perfection. I mean, the third time's a charm, right? Exactly. (laughs) Third time is a charm. So let's go back to your journey. Um, and I, you know, I know that you ended up moving to a different part of the country that has a lot of food pride. Um, and maybe that also kind of inspired you to reconnect with your pride for the Midwest. Oh, it did. It absolutely did. So speaking of the third time being the charm, I moved to South Carolina after I graduated from Northwestern. Um, and I was working in restaurants and I was incredibly homesick because there's something about not only moving away from your home, but moving away from the region. It was like you said, the, I moved to the South, which is very, very known for its food and its food culture and the contributions that it has made to the map of, um, like the culinary tapestry of, uh, the United States. And, I realized how much I missed my food traditions, my family recipes, my fish fries. I I realized how much I missed all of that. And just being so homesick, I made my third food blog, which is what I do now full time, which is Midwest Nice Blog. And I just wanted it to be a celebration of the Midwest and how much we have to offer here. And I'm also really happy that during my time in South Carolina, I learned so much more about food and food techniques. And I was, you know, I was the head of a pastry program. I worked at multiple bakeries and ate my way around the South. And it was just an invaluable learning experience, just like going to college in Chicago was an invaluable learning experience. Mm -hmm. Sure. You get, you get exposure to so many different flavors. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, a deeper, it just deepened my appreciation for being from the Midwest and from Wisconsin, you know, to, to bring, bring cheese curds into work. You know, I, I travel home right, and, and then the next week at work, when I came back, I had, you know, I had some new Glarus that I had driven down and some cheese curds that I'd packed in a cooler. For people that don't know about New Glarus, it is one of the best beers in America, but you cannot get it outside of Wisconsin. No, you cannot. It is, it's illegal to sell it anywhere outside of Wisconsin. So I would, you know, bring, bring six packs back for me and my coworkers. And we would literally like eat fresh Wisconsin cheese and drink some of the best Wisconsin beer. And it was just so fun. It was so fun to share that with, with my Southern friends. That's, I mean, and what do they think? How did they, how did they react to those, those different flavors that maybe they had not had before? Oh, every, everybody loved it. Of course. I mean, the concept of squeaky cheese just blew their minds. Um, No, but it was, it, it was always so fun to, to share those things and to, 
to really kind of, you trade these things back and forth, right? Like I learned how to make the best biscuits that I've ever had living in the South. And I like to think that, oh yeah, I taught people how to make beer brats or how, you know, how to have um, cheese and sausage, right? Like summer sausage and cheese and we're watching a football game and that it was just, it was so much fun. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like a regional foodways exchange program, which nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, getting, getting a chance to, to share the, you know, your different cultures with one another, uh, you know, while, um, you know, getting together and doing so, you know, through food is just one of the best things I think. So somehow you ended up back from South Carolina to Wisconsin, but you started the Midwest nice blog, you know, while you were still, in South Carolina. So you decided you were going to move back and continue it, right? Yes, I did. Yep. My, my older sister had babies and I met these babies and I held them. And it just, in that moment, everything crystallized and it was, I need to move home. It's, I, I realized that while I had these beautiful experiences in the South, um, and I made dear friends who are lifelong friends still to this day, um, that it just wasn't the place for me for one reason or another. Like I just, I, I am Wisconsin through and through. I am so proud to be from here. I love, I love this state and what it provides so much. And so, yeah, I moved home and I got a job that, um, a high school employer had opened a a craft brewery in the town next to where I grew up. And he was kind enough to offer me a job even though he'd known me as, as a flighty little high schooler. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you a chance. And so I got to work behind the bar of an amazing brewery and learn even more about beer and how beer culture itself is, is such Mm -hmm. a part of the Wisconsin DNA and, and take a lot of pride in that too. And, and I met my husband uh, while serving him a beer at that bar. And it was just, it was, look one, at that. yes, it was one of those things where I think also very much like when you're in the kitchen, once I stopped fighting it, once I allowed things to flow, once I stopped forcing, you know, I forced myself to stay in South Carolina to get jobs to, to, I was, I was just trying to forcibly make roots. Once I stopped fighting that and I came back to Wisconsin everything fell into place so quickly, so hmm. easily. I won't say effortlessly because it's taken a ton of effort to get to sure. where I am today, but it's effort that I enjoy so much endlessly, boundlessly. It's, it's energizing instead of exhausting. Um, and yeah, now I, I get to like I said earlier, I make food in our little kitchen with our little dog every day and I get to share it with the world. Um, and it's really fun to, to share a personal history and sort of the, um, the regional and geographical history too. I mean, from, we talked about beer brats and cheese curds, but let's talk jello salads. You know, let's, let's, let's talk, talk jello salads. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. My, my husband's family has, the, it's called Aunt Frida's salad and it is a green jello based salad that happens to have cheddar cheese in it. And, you know, it's, it's a staple at family get togethers or, you know, cranberries. I think it's something like 60, 70% of the world's cranberries come from Wisconsin. And it's just so fun to me people think of Wisconsin, they think, oh, beer, cheese, and Packers. And it's like, yeah, but ocean spray or, you know, it's, so I really am diving even more into cranberry uh, recipes and really sharing those because there's so much you can do with a cranberry. It's been really fun. Uh, it, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like fun and it, and that fun and that energy comes through with every everything that you're saying about, you know, basically ending up exactly where you needed to be. So it's really, you know, um, it's been about the journey, but ultimately the destination is exactly where 
you were supposed to be from day one, you know, there in, in your grandma's kitchen all the way, you know, fast forward 30 plus years later to your own kitchen with your husband and your dog and your, you know, jello salad and your brats and your, you know, figuring out how to make wild game. What's on the horizon for, for Midwest Nice, uh, you know, coming up? Yes. Um, thank you for asking. I am just going to continue. I really am focusing this year on just really digging deep into that Wisconsin Midwestern roots and sharing those recipes. Um, I have, I'm looking at my calendar here and I have four different jello salad recipes that I'm going to be sharing in the couple <laughs> in the coming months. Um, finally sharing my fish fry recipe, doing more wild game. My husband is a big hunter. Um, and in the summer I have just started, I've just started the planning stages with a friend, a local friend. He owns a restaurant and a hotel in a beautiful part oh, wow. of Wisconsin. And we're actually planning our first, um, Wisconsin foodie retreat. So my fellow food bloggers from all oh, across goodness. the country. Yes. Some fellow food bloggers are going to travel here and we are going to spend a weekend enjoying all of the, the joy and the, the delicious food that Wisconsin has to offer. So on the docket, we're, we're going to do a fish fry. Um, my husband is from a big farming family, so we're planning, we're planning to have it so that they're here during peak sweet corn season. So we can go and pick fresh sweet corn and show people how we make freezer corn, how we make corn chowder, um, you know, recreate those Wisconsin state fair cream puffs, have a great bloody Mary bar, you know, just do all of those really fun things and showcase just how many wonderful things there are in Wisconsin to enjoy. Well, I mean, sign me up. That sounds like an absolute blast. And, you are more you know, than welcome and a to come. masterclass. <laughs> and it sounds like a masterclass in, you know, Wisconsin culinary food ways. For folks that, you know, might not be able to make it to that or, you know, want to know more about jello salads and and though all of this really fun, authentic Midwest uh food. How can they find you in your blog? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I would love if everybody went to my website. It is called MidwestNiceBlog.com. And I'm on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at MidwestNiceMakes. So you can you can find me there. And I share, I share recipe videos. I share snippets of our life in the Midwest. Um, my husband went viral a couple of years ago for sharing his green jello salad recipe. (laughs) So it's always a fun time over there. (laughs) Well, I mean, what better way to go viral than for green jello salad? I mean, that's, (laughs) I mean, if that is definitely an aspiration for, for anyone inside or outside of the Midwest, I'm going to have to check that out. This has been an absolute pleasure and a blast. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey with us, Amanda, and we'll certainly be sure to check out the Midwest Nice blog. Thank you so much for having me, Capri. This is just a dream come true. This is Eat Your Heartland Out with me, Capri Cafaro. After the break, I'll welcome James Norton, author and co-founder of the magazine Heavy Table. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheese-making traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheese-making culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Com. We want to welcome you, James. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Tell our listeners a, a bit about you know where you started and and ultimately how that got you where we are today. Yeah, I, I jumped into uh, journalism uh, back around the turn of the millennium, uh, doing hard news, doing 
Actually, I was a Middle East news editor for the Christian Science Monitor in Boston. Mm-hmm. It does um, not get more hardcore than that, let's be honest, particularly was, at that time in life. Christian Science exci- Monitor, Boston, and yeah, Middle it was, East. It was an, ex- it was an exciting, uh, exciting period in that region, although, you know, that region tends to stay lively. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got I got rolling in the journalism business. And uh, uh, four or five years after that, I actually made a jump into radio and I was working with uh, Al Franken, who later became a senator for the state of Minnesota as he started his radio show in New York City. So I kind of went from, you know, uh, straight news journalism into uh, partisan talk radio Mm -hmm. and then. The radio show moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, which brought me into the beautiful upper Midwest part of the, the country. And uh, I started doing some uh, basically some freelancing in the, the world of food and drink. And as my interest in politics kind of uh, diminished, my interest in the way people uh, eat and drink and talk about all things culinary uh, really, really began to, to spike. And I kind of transitioned my career uh, from hard news into uh, in, into all things edible. Well, you make me feel less strange, um, having gone <laughs> from a life in public service and government and uh, public policy to um, you know a world of you know culture uh, and and culinary and and all of those things that that you just discussed. Uh, I you are you a Midwest native? I am. I grew up uh, and went to college in Madison, Wisconsin. That's so that's what my, I thought. My home city. So, so you have those those Midwestern roots already, and you you know you came back thanks to Al Franken, um, and uh, you know you you got uh, inspired somewhere along the line and, and shifted your focus. What was what if anything really was there um, a specific precipitating moment where you're like you know what this is why I really love the subject of food and drink and culture. Um, you know, was there that one little spark that uh, kind of got you going in a different direction? You know, I think the the really key turning point was starting work on the book, The Master Cheesemakers of Wisconsin. You know, obviously I grew up in Wisconsin. I knew that we had great cheese. I enjoyed a slice of cheese from time to time. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of the, the the process of digging into just how deep these traditions were, just how skillful these makers were, how uh, varied and like widely spread the different traditions were that made me think, oh, this has been here under our noses in plain sight the whole time. But we just don't really recognize that, uh, you know, the the cheese of Wisconsin is such a incredible, internationally recognized, fantastic thing. I think we just we tend to overlook it and think, oh, well, Vermont is fancier or California mm-hmm. is bigger or France is the world's best. And um, actually getting on the road and going to these cheese plants, talking to these makers, maybe think, oh, my goodness, there is this incredibly deep, serious food tradition here in the upper Midwest that I didn't really see. And that and that kicked off a number. And we could talk more about this as we go, a number of different explorations into things in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, mm-hmm. uh, beyond where, you know, there's just excellent work being done, often underappreciated, but, you know, as delicious as anything you can eat anywhere uh, on the planet. Absolutely. And I I do want to circle back to that. And I do want to dig deeper into your book about Wisconsin Master Cheesemakers. But I want to go back into this, you know, concept of how did you start, how did you want to write a book about cheese? I mean, there had to be something um, around you that said, you know, I want to explore this as opposed to, um, you know, what I'm doing now. Now, and I, I recognize that there's there's sort of two separate things probably going on. One is a, you know, diminishing interest in what you were doing as far as politics, but an increasing interest in this, you know, sort of food and drink and culture world. Um, but, you know, what brought you to the cheese book? Well, the inciting incident was uh, my wife and I, we're taking a uh, cross-country road trip, and we ended up in San Francisco at the Ferry Building. Mm. And we were at a cheesemonger there, and it turned out the cheesemonger was from Minnesota. And so we were talking about Midwestern cheese, and she just started chatting with us about the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program and how they yes. take these 
journeymen or master cheesemakers who already know their stuff, bring them back to an academic environment, train them up even further and give them this sort of master's mark. And uh, my wife, Becca, and I, were, we were so interested in this and so curious about it and so excited about it. And we were driving north up to up to uh, uh, Portland, Oregon after that. And we're in the car. And I, I don't remember if it was her or I, one of us said, oh, wouldn't it be interesting you know, to meet the people who are so fanatic about cheese that they become professional cheesemakers and then go back and get the certification. And, you know, Beck is a photographer. I'm a writer. Yeah. How long did it take you to assemble and do the research? Uh, I think it was about seven or eight months. And Mm -hmm. we did about 7,200 miles of driving on Wisconsin roads. We talked to 42 cheesemakers at 35 different dairy plants. Wow. And we got to basically every part of the, of the state in, in the course of doing the book. So what did you learn on this cheese road trip of yours that turned into a book? Uh, well, we learned a lot. But uh, one of the things that really struck me is just I didn't fully appreciate that Wisconsin has third, fourth, even fifth generation cheesemakers, uh, mm-hmm. often with ancestry going right back to Germany, Switzerland, or, Swiss, Switzerland or Italy. Uh, and so it's 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 not just people came to Wisconsin, thought cows would be good here. I wonder if we can try to make <laughs> cheese. It's people who, who in their bones knew what they were doing and had traditions that they were tapping into. Uh, another thing that we learned is that there's also tremendous innovation. You know, we, you get yes. to the third and fourth and fifth generation and people start playing with mixed milks and adjunct ingredients and new techniques. And so you've got cheese as traditional as it comes, you know, like really classic cheddars and Limburgers and stuff like that. But you also have cheeses that were invented in Wisconsin, like Colby and Brick. And then these new you know, it's sheep's milk and cow's milk and goat's milk, or it's rubbed uh, with fennel pollen, or it's got stinging nettles mixed into the gouda, like things like that, like just really exciting, interesting things that you don't often find other places. So you've got deep tradition, you've got innovation, and you've got it all going on in one place. And so you, you get out there and start talking to people, and it's just exciting to discover that breadth. And it's also really interesting, particularly the smaller kind of craft cheesemakers, just how multi-talented these people are. They're jacks of all trades or jills of all trades. They do their own plumbing. They do their own electrical work. They drive the truck. I mean, they do everything because if they don't do it, they don't have the margins to survive. So Mm -hmm. they're these incredible hustlers who know dozens of different skills at a deep level. And some of these guys are in their, you know, we met them in their late 50s, early 60s, even late 60s running around on milk trucks, grabbing cheese out of vats, hauling, you know, wheels around. I'm like, I, I don't think I could do that. Like I it just uh, athletic and uh, fireballs of energy and creativity. And all fueled by that passion for cheese. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that really surprised you when you met these cheesemakers, uh, whether it was, you know, maybe a technique or just a, f- a flavor profile that you never anticipated? Uh, one of the interesting tidbits that I picked up on is a cheese called Eustalipa, which is a, a Finnish cheese that's made in Wisconsin. I, I hadn't heard of it before doing this book, but it's actually produced in fairly good quantities. And it's, uh, it's called a bread cheese. You can actually put it on hmm. a griddle and, or a grill and sear it and it won't melt. It so kind of, kind of like a halloumi. So like, like, a, a, like, a, like a halloumi. Like a halloumi, Exactly. And in Finland, one of the things they do with it is you'll cut it in a little block and you'll drop it in your coffee and it'll sit at the bottom of your coffee and get really soft and release some of that lactose into your coffee. And you Fascinating. Eat the super, yeah, isn't that weird? And then and you'll eat the little super soft cheese at the end of your cup of coffee. Uh, not not so in Wisconsin. The, the cheese has gone savory. It's gone salty instead of sweet. And it's something that you will grill up before a football game and serve as an appetizer. So... In a sense, it's a very traditional Finnish-style cheese, but it's been reinterpreted uh, and reinvented in Wisconsin. And, like, I don't know, it's just a little quirky thing, but it was something I didn't know before, and it was really fun to to learn and to taste. I know you have at least one more book that you have written more recently, but before we uh, kind of venture on into that, I want to talk to you about um, one of your major projects that you have been kind of working on and around for almost, you know, almost two decades. Uh, and that is Heavy Table. 
Um, so uh, explain what that is all about and how it got started. So Heavy Table got its start uh, <clears throat> about 2009 uh, as a, an advertiser-supported blog. Um, I ran it until about 2018 in that format, took a break and got a, a food editor job at a magazine called The Growler in St. Paul for about two years. The pandemic popped up, uh, wrecked The Growler, and I restarted Heavy Table as a Patreon-backed newsletter, and that's its current format. Um, over the years, we've published probably about 3 million words uh, about Upper Midwestern food. We've had dozens of regular contributors. We've been all over the region, but we're particularly heavy in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro. Sure. And it's just been like a, a, a blank check to explore Upper Midwestern food, tell the stories that really mean the most to, to me and our contributors and our readers, uh, and kind of get beyond the surface of our region. That's that's mm-hmm. been the, the neatest thing about it is we can ask deep questions, do long interviews and go to places other people don't bother going. Well, I mean, that's definitely aspects that uh, I think drew me to your work um, is that willingness to you know dig a little deeper and, um, you know, really highlight some of the, uh, the complexities and the gems of the upper Midwest for folks that aren't necessarily as. Uh, familiar as, as certainly you or, or may, maybe even me with uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and aspects of the upper Midwest, give a little taste, literally and figuratively, <laughs> of, um, you know, what makes this region unique um, and diverse when it comes to um, what's offered on the table there? I would describe it as kind of a Germanic Scandinavian bedrock of home food, comfort food, folk food, mm-hmm. that kind of resonates in the region. But what's really exciting to me is that we've had these waves of immigration come particularly to the Twin Cities and really change the way people eat and drink. Um, St. Paul University Avenue, particularly, there's an incredible wealth of Southeast Asian food, uh, Hmong, Vietnamese, Cambodian, uh, Thai, Lao, like all this stuff, first-generation people cooking for other first-generation people um, and just doing like an incredible job. Anthony Bourdain came here and said it was the best Vietnamese food he'd had outside of Vietnam. Um, and I, I haven't That's been to That's saying Viet- something. That's saying something. <laughs> a guy knew what he was talking about. Um, there's also an incredible uh, East African diaspora. Mm-hmm. And so Eritrean, Ethiopian, uh, Somali, uh, those restaurants are all over the place and they're available and they're really good. And uh, particularly in East Lake Street here in Minneapolis, there is a, a real a Latin Mexican Central American population and you can get incredible tacos here uh, uh, in, 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 in other in, you know, roast chicken and rice and beans, other traditional uh, Mexican foods that I think if you, you're just coming in for, through the airport and you haven't been here before, you would never guess. But right. uh, there's just tr- terrific Latin food uh, and it gets overlooked and it's really on the rise. I, I, I think that one of the things I've been doing with Heavy Table that I'm excited about is watching uh, immigrant populations, Asian populations, Latin populations get to the second and third generations. And you get mm-hmm. these restaurateurs who come out who have the connection to these authentic eating traditions and super rich, bright flavors and they're also very savvy about how to market to a general audience. Yes. So you're starting, you're starting to see this like really, I hate to use the word authentic, but like really deep, complex food reaching out to like a broader audience in a more accessible way. And so it's, it's, it's really changing the character of the restaurants around here in a great way. Now, this brings me to something that um, I wanted you to absolutely tell our listeners about, um, and that is your Feb-skiving tradition because you mentioned you mentioned this to me before yeah and it's something that you kind of revel in to bring people from all over the country to experience what you now know about the midwest yeah we're on year i don't know 14 or 15 of this i I could track it down it's not super important but uh (laughs) not long after moving here i realized that every february i get incredibly depressed because it's dark and it's cold 
and it's miserable and the winter just seems like it will never die. Like you're just, you are, you are not alone. And, and, you know, I know that people might be listening to this podcast at any time, but right now we are in a bit of a polar vortex as we record. Yeah. So it feels like permanent winter and there's no hope. There's no light. There's no, nothing going on. And so my wife and I thought, well, why don't we just throw a really big dinner party called Febgiving? It'll basically be Thanksgiving menu, but copy pasted into the middle of February and so we did that, and it turns out if you plan a big party like that, you've got to do a lot of like work beforehand and cleaning the house and making the menu and doing the shopping and getting the recipes and inviting the people and all this, you know, Michigas that kind of surrounds it. And suddenly you're busy for weeks before this thing, and you're not thinking about how depressed you are and how dark it is. You're excited to see friends and excited to see family, and like it's kind of fun. And so we did it, you know, at our house with about 10 or 11 people. And we started having friends come in from out of state. And then we started having friends fly in from both coasts. And now we're up to, I don't know, 25 to 30 people plus a bunch of kids. We rent uh, some geodesic domes out in the suburbs <laughs> and like set up camp for, and have like a three or, four awesome. day, three or four day party. Um, and it's this way to reconnect with people that we absolutely love and don't see often enough who mm-hmm. come into Minnesota in February from all, you know, all parts of the country. That's commitment. That's commitment. commitment. Well, well, it's on become, all parts. On all parts, because you got to get to Minnesota. Yeah, you know, you're you're braving <laughs> the elements. Um, oh, you know, yeah. as a, as a guest and all those things, and then you know, you and your wife and your family as hosts have a, as you said, a lot of work to do. Now, I know you don't do this anymore, but I wanted you to talk about it anyway, which is Chef Camp Minnesota. Yeah. So for about five iterations, I think over the course of three or four years. Uh, me and my business partner, Dave Friedman, who has since moved out of state, which is sort of the, the end of this project, would rent an entire uh, YMCA summer camp called Camp Miller, about an hour and a half north of Minneapolis. And we would book four or five really top flight chefs to be instructors and teach something that they know on open fires. So we have big grills and campfires and all kinds of like open fire kind of cooking opportunities. And we would sell tickets. We get, you know, 90 to like 120 people would come up for the whole weekend. And it would just be chef instruction. It would be foraging. We would have uh, like a six course dinner on Saturday night. We'd have a chef led brunch. Um, a couple times we did canoe bars. We'd canoe out into the lake and there'd How be a, fun. Canoe, a canoe there with drinks for you. Uh, we'd burn Swedish torches, which are like logs burning vertically around a giant campfire. And it was so much fun. We had astronomy and fermentation and cooking a whole octopus on the grill and a pachamaca buried grill and uh it was really a tremendous thing and it was it was it was really fun to kind of embrace where we are in terms of the chefs being all minneapolis st paul people and then getting out to the north woods and like getting out there with uh the fresh air and the clean water and the, the the fires burning outside it was just a glorious time it sounds like it. I mean, again, like, you know, I'll, I want to continue to needle you to bring this back, but it sounds like just a great concept, one that I know takes a lot, a lot of work uh, as well, but one I'm, I'm sure participants get a ton out of um, when, when, it was, when it was going on. So um, Chef Camp Minnesota, put a pin in it because maybe it'll come back in a, in a different iteration. I mean, you are... Uh, you know, such an explorer of everything, you know, in this region and beyond. Uh, and I know that that has produced another book. You've produced another book. You've written another book. And I'm certainly not going to let you go without talking about that one as well. And it's called Lake Superior Flavors. Um, and I know it probably sounds exactly how it's described, but tell us a little bit more about that book and, and how you um, came to write it. Yeah. So Lake Superior Flavors is another book in collaboration with my wife, Becca. So she did the photography. I did the interviews and writing. It's a kind of a field guide to the food and drink uh, along the circle tour, taking you all the way around Lake Superior. So if you wanted to break that out into regions, it's kind of a story of food on Minnesota's north shore of Lake Superior and then into Ontario, Canada, like Thunder Bay, Thunder and Sioux, Bay. all the way to all the way over to Sault Ste. Marie, oh, and then wow. down down through UP, uh, Michigan, and then the South Shore of Lake Superior, which is Wisconsin's kind of north coast. Um, that's kind of how it breaks down. And it was really cool. We we basically we did the circle tour about two and a half times. We made some other little trips up to kind of do research and. 
we went to restaurants, we met chefs, we went fishing with a herring fisherman in Lake Superior, we met a beekeeper, we went foraging, oh, wow. um, we kind of, we went, you know, met brewers and vintners and just kind of dug into the people making and celebrating food uh, from the region of Lake Superior and tried to figure out what does that mean, what's it about, uh, what are people eating and why, and it was uh, it was a blast. It's a, it's, so it's, it's it's a food book. It's also it's also a travelogue, and it's really mm-hmm. uh, it's really one of those beautiful parts of the whole country. I think Lake Superior is very under celebrated uh, for how legitimately majestic and and uh, uh, awe inspiring that it is. I, I couldn't agree more. There's no question about that. I mean, Lake Superior is beautiful, and I mean, just all the things that you just kind of touched upon at a very high level. So many different beekeepers to brewers. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot to see, a lot to offer going out, you know, obviously on the lake and fishing. How did you identify the subjects that you ultimately featured? Did you stumble upon them or was it research, a little bit of both? It's always a little bit of both. Uh, when I when I work on a trip like this, I have uh, an itinerary that I've developed uh, partially through my own sort of online research, but partially by talking to people I trust in these various places and saying, hey, here's my project. Who should I talk to? And right. usually people say, oh, you got to talk to this person or, oh, she's doing something really cool. Um, and, you know, a lot will line up interviews uh, in every sort of city or between cities as available uh, so that we have a, a schedule as we make our as we make our drive. Uh, but then, you know, you just got to try eating at some random place or like, oh, we were in uh, UP, for example, driving through the middle of a forest and like, oh, there's a bakery here in the middle of the forest for no reason. Like, we got to go check it out. So great interview, great bread, like really <laughs> That's weird. That's amazing. Yeah. So you just kind of like you have to be open to what the what the universe is giving you uh, on top of doing some some pre-planning. It's a it's it's definitely it's definitely a mix. I think uh, a good travel writer um, you know, has a plan and is not, not, not unwilling to abandon it if something inter- more interesting comes along. Or maybe total, you know, disaster and chaos. Any good stories like that where, you know, I don't know, the boat almost sank or, uh, you know, you guys got snowed in someplace and couldn't get out? Uh, we got we got caught in Canada during Canadian Thanksgiving, which we didn't plan for. Oh, uh, everything yes, was which closed. is in October for folks that don't know. It's not November. As we did not know. So that was, I mean, it wasn't a disaster, but it was uh, inconvenient and surprising. Uh, I mean, the scariest thing that happened on the trip for me is we went out uh, herring fishing. With this guy, Steve Dahl, we didn't know anything about it. It was like, oh, he's going to take us out fishing. Cool. His boat was just like this flat little thing that's like three inches off the lake. Uh, the, the, the life jackets were like pounded flat, 40 years old. Uh, and I don't like the water. I am not a water person. I am not a boat person. So it's like five 30 in the morning. The sun is just coming up over the lake and we're on this tiny little skiff, like heading out into the waves. I'm just like, Oh my God, this is where it ends. Um, you know, that would freak me out too, but it's a good story. Yeah, it was. And it was, I mean, the photography was beautiful. Uh, the interview was good and, you know, I survived, so it's fine. But uh, it was it was uh, more than I bargained for, for sure. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, that is really what it's all about, you know, is uh, not being afraid to take those risks because that's really sometimes where you find uh, the most compelling stuff and uh, obviously uh, timeless memories from <laughs> uh, something that you maybe wouldn't have, have done otherwise. Um if you weren't on this journey seeking out these stories from these from these individuals and these makers um, in these different ways, uh, James, this has been such a, a, uh, an exciting conversation for me. Uh, and to hear about all of your work has been inspiring and hopefully inspiring to uh, our listener as, as well. For folks that want to learn more, how do they find your books and how do they find Heavy Table? Yeah, I would just say go to heavytable.com. Uh, or go to patreon.com slash heavy table. Uh, and that's the best way to kind of connect with it. Uh, you can follow at a free level. Uh, if you back us for $5 a month, you get four newsletters, which are pretty substantial newsletters, one every Friday, uh, telling you about food and drink in the upper Midwest. Uh, uh, at the $10 level, it's actually six newsletters. So you can go, you can go heavy on it if you want. Uh, the books are available. I think mostly still available on Amazon. You can find them through my biography uh, at Heavy Table. 
Um, it's heavytable.com is probably your, your, your best starting point to, to catch up on what I've been doing. Awesome. Well, folks, head to heavytable.com. We really appreciate your time and, and sharing with us your story, your journey, and your work. This has been so much fun. James Norton, um, thank you for taking your time to join Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a blast. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.